Hello, welcome to the FPS podcast series. This is podcast number 21, Understanding Teaming Agreements. My name is Todd Hatherly, and I'm the Director of Programming for Federal Publication Seminars, and we're a leader in federal government contract training and professional development for the past 60 years. And every year, Federal Publication Seminars trains thousands of businesses, federal agencies, and individuals on the legal, regulatory, compliance, and accounting nuances found in the federal regulations through nationwide classroom, online, and in-house sessions. These podcasts are a small sampling of important content you as a contracting professional can expect from attending an FBS program. Whether you're in person or online, live or on demand, you cannot find another source with the breadth and depth of experience, knowledge, and content anywhere. So please visit us at fedpubseminars.com for more information. Today, we're going to discuss teaming agreements and their role in federal contracting. And joining me is Matt McKelvey, and he's the president and founder of the McKelvey Group. Matt has some years of experience with helping organizations in developing, executing, and managing teaming agreements. Hey, Matt, how are you today? Doing well, Todd. How are you? I am doing wonderful. It's a great day to be alive and talking about a subject that is misunderstood a lot, which is teaming agreements. I'm going to start out with a question for you. Uh, what is a teaming agreement, and why is it important? John, that's actually a great place to start. In the world of federal contracting, teaming agreements, normally between two parties, a prime contractor and one of their subcontractors on a proposal. And the idea is that the teaming agreement establishes that these two parties are going to work together. And within that teaming agreement, they discuss what will be provided by each party from a workload perspective, from a performance perspective, and from a content perspective. They are very, very common and most often used in nearly all government procurements. Now, you said between two parties. Can there be more than two parties for a teaming agreement? There can be. Normally, though, what you'll have is you'll have a prime contractor and they'll have multiple subcontractors. It's the most common structure of a proposal team. And in that case, the prime contractor will have multiple teaming agreements with different partners. Having said that, I have seen where there's cooperative agreements or when there are other types of potential joint ventures, subcontractors, et cetera, where there might be multiple to multiple. But the most common by far, Todd, is a prime contractor with one team agreement with a subcontractor, or that prime contractor will have multiple team agreements on their team. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. So why do uh, primes want to use the teaming agreement? Well, the teaming agreements are important because they really do a, a few things. Number one is they formalize the relationship between the parties. And this matters because a lot of times companies start looking at procurements months and years before the government releases an RFP. And in order to actually start doing that work ahead of time, Establishing, again, the roles and the responsibilities, the work share that's being committed, the reasons for being together is really, really important. So what the, what the prime is usually trying to do and what the subcontractor is trying to do is, number one, formalize that they're going to be on the team. Now, why would they do this? Well, especially from the prime's perspective, there are a few reasons. One is they might really need that subcontractor to fill a niche or to fill a gap in their response. It could be a skill set. It could be past performance. Just something that actually adds to the overall power of the team. Other reason might be to actually be competitive, to take a subcontractor off the market, that they won't go with other team members, other, I'm sorry, other competitive teams. There's a few reasons to do it, but fundamentally it is to establish that relationship and formalize the agreement to work together on a proposal. So negotiating this team agreement, who initiates and who's involved in that? This is interesting. I talked about the timing, right, a few minutes ago that, that team agreements can be established and started months, if not years, before a procurement comes out. Well, usually that's being handled by the business development or capture functions within a company. 
for smaller organizations, that might be the owners. They get mid-sized and larger. There are people whose defined roles are capturing business development. And what they're really doing is identifying the team early on to, to, for those two reasons I mentioned earlier. To one, make sure that the team is, is completes what the RFP is going to require or and or two, takes a competitor, potential competitor away. Now, having said that, I do believe that's the appropriate group to do the negotiating. However, there are a lot of considerations that should be put into play. And I think we'll talk about a few of those in a few minutes. But fundamentally, it's not just locking that team member up. It's also potentially thinking about how are you going to respond to the proposal. So from a technical perspective, making sure that the technical requirements really are needed from that subcontractor. Um, and from a pricing perspective, making sure that, there, that there's a commitment of work share that does not basically box you out in the pricing strategy later at a later date when the RFP actually releases. This is like going back to high school in the prom. I, when you want to go out and find your date for a prom, you start out pretty early. This sounds like that's what you do in team agreements. When is the negotiation taking place? <laughs> that's actually a great metaphor there. I like that a lot. Yes, you want to actually establish it early because you don't want to lose access to those important team members. No, so when it starts, and I do believe this really is in the pre-RFP stage. The reason is, you have a lot more opportunities to identify your teaming partners. Uh, those teaming partners haven't committed to other teams or they don't have the ability to actually schedule and plan around it. This really comes down to the prime contractor, as soon as they decide they're gonna pursue an opportunity, they should be having these conversations. And again, that really needs to be long before the pre-RFE stage of, um, sorry, an RFI or a draft RFE. It needs to be in the pre-RFE stage before the procurement's even built by the, by the government. As a small business, you want to try to team up with a larger prime, where do they go? Where do, where do you start? The reality is there's a couple things. Number one, if you're a small business looking to, that you want to partner with larger companies or companies that have current contracts, the key is, again, creating relationships early on. You need to develop those relationships, and that's talking to them, finding out what opportunities you want to pursue long before they come out on GovWin or on, um, on SAM.gov. Uh, you want to make sure that you're talking with the prime contractors. It's, it's ingrained in government contracting that these conversations happen all the time. Um, it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to be able to join a team, but you don't join a team unless you express interest. Of course, if you're that right. one unique sub that has a niche that is really, really going to be pursued by multiple primes, that's a great position to be in, but it's not the most common. Pick up the phone, find out who the business development person is for that procurement for the prime that you want to be with, and start talking to them about how you might be able to contribute to their, their effort. That's the key. What are some of the red flags? So let's say I find a partner. I'm teaming up with a partner, whether I'm on the prime or if I'm on the sub side. What, what are some of the red flags I should be looking at before entering that teaming agreement, either whether I'm on the prime or if I'm the sub? So overall, you want to make sure that, number one, that the, the, the company you're teaming with has a reputation for being fair. Um, what's kind of important is, and this gets lost a lot in the teaming agreement size, and I probably should have said this earlier on, but I can say it now. The teaming agreement is the agreement between the prime and the sub in the proposal stage. And if the prime wins the contract, it becomes the basis for the subcontract agreement that is entered in between the prime and the sub in the contract performance stage. Mm -hmm. And what you don't want to do is provide a lot of support either as a prime or a sub under procurement and then in performance not have that same relationship. The companies out there and most contractors are very good about this is they want to live up to the ideals and they want to live up to the terms of the team agreement in the subcontract agreement. So you want to make sure though that, that someone you either worked with before or you ha has a good reputation for working well with partners. That's number one. Uh, number two, one of the ones that I really raise to my clients all the time is make sure that the team agreement is solid. You don't want to have a lot of we'll figure this out later type of language in the teaming agreement because if you're a subcontractor or a prime, the most 
powerful place to have this conversation, the most important place to have this conversation is early. Because you don't want to have the two parties think they're on the same page. And then as the procurement actually drops and it becomes the pressure time of, of actual proposal response and having that there's really not an agreement there. That could be about rates. It could be about work share. It could be about what commitment for the technical prop writing is going to be there. It's just very important to work it out. So a red flag to me is a team agreement that is very, very vague and not providing details. Those hard conversations are hard for a reason. And it's better to have them early rather than later. Those are a couple of the main red flags that I see. Um, there are very specific ones to primes and subs. We can talk about those in a few minutes if you'd like, Todd. So let's say I'm about ready to sign. I identified a teaming agreement. I identified a prime. I'm a small business. Do I need to bring a lawyer into this sometime? Well, it's always the challenge, right? Because as a small business, you likely don't have counsel on payroll, right? The larger companies have people who are dedicated to this, smaller don't. That's just the nature of a larger company versus a smaller one. It's almost always a business judgment question. I would say, however, that it is important to at least have contra a contracts person or a legal person look at your most important team agreements, the ones that are the most critical to the organizations, the ones that are most critical as far as size goes or getting into an agency that's, that's part of your strategic plan moving forward. It doesn't mean you have to have this legal review of you know, hundreds of hours and trying to go back and forth. It's not that. It might be more even of a legal review saying, here are the things that we see the good and the bad, the right and the wrong. And then as a business owner or as a capture manager for the smaller business, you can then work to negotiate with the prime. In my experience, when a subcontractor needs to invest some time and money into an attorney or a contracts person that's not an employee already on payroll, the primes that are, that are the most ideal to work with understand that and will try to find ways to mitigate those things that become up. And the reasons are fundamentally, you want to make sure there's nothing in there contractual language wise that limits your opportunities or your potential for being part of the team upon award. At the end of the day, that's the biggest thing. So let's switch over a little bit to the pricing strategy perspective. What's the most important part of the teaming agreement? Within the teaming agreements, there's there going to be contractual, and just like in the RFP, there's going to be a portion that talks about um, the contractual relationship between the two parties. Then there's going to be the discussion about the technical response, the technical contributions from both team members. There might be something about past performance. But there's invariably going to be, and there should be, by the way, a section on work share or commitments by the prime to the sub as far as what they're going to offer the sub as part of this team agreement. Um, the best way to think about it in a services contract, for example, that's the number of people or the number of hours or the percentage of work share that's gonna to go to that subcontractor. That is what really also does drive the pricing in the proposal itself. And this is why I mentioned early on that it is important and the best, the best practices in the industry are to have pricing folks involved in reviewing the work share portions of these team agreements when they're signed a year or more before the procurement comes out because what you don't want to do is paint yourselves into a corner. Um, that can happen because, you know, too much of the, of the work share is, is guaranteed to the subs and that ties the hands of the pricing folks, or um, there's no real discussion about what the relative pricing has to be from the subcontractors to achieve that work share. There are a lot of things that have to be considered out there, but by far from a pricing perspective, it's the work share section of the team agreement. You're talking the work share perspective. What's the difference between prime to consider versus a sub? And then it's a great question, Todd. And the reality is it's all about perspective, okay? And the fact of the matter is primes are looking at, they're looking at trying to build a team to maximize the potential to win the contract. They're putting in the most money probably because they're putting the largest effort in. Um, this is part of their strategic plan to achieve it. And for the subcontractors, it's not always the same case. Sometimes the subs are there because they really want the work, but it's not gonna necessarily be a, a live or die by their, their side. So it really comes down to perspective. Usually the prime 
wants to, to minimize the cost impact while maximizing the technical scoring or, or the responsiveness as a team. The subcontractor is going to protect themselves from a profitability standpoint and from a, a value to them of having enough work share to justify being there. So they're very different perspectives. And I would tell you, most contractors spend time both as a prime and as a subs. It's important to remember when you're a subcontractor, put your prime contractor hat on and understand why they're asking what they're asking. And when you're a prime contractor, put your subcontractor hat on and remember why the subs are asking what they're asking for. So that's important. But let me take a second here. Let me talk about the primes first. From a prime perspective, the most important thing is to not come up with very specific numbers. What I mean by that is, as a, let's use services contracts as an example. You should have a range of work share, X percent to Y percent. Let's, let's say, for example, one to five percent of the work share is assigned to that subcontractor. And the subcontractor get a higher work share percentage based upon price competitiveness or on how much they do support the proposal or the nature of how the RFP comes out. The reason to have a range is you don't know what the RFP is going to look like. You don't know if the hour is going to be fixed. You don't know a lot about it. And you don't want to paint yourself the corner with FTEs or specific numbers saying, no matter what happens, we're going to give you, in that example, 5%. There should be a range. All right. And that range is to incentivize the subs to actually help support the overall price win strategy. It's also important to consider how many subs you're going to have as a prime. Because if you give, let's say, 5% to six subs, that's 30% going out the door right now. You have to be careful because every time you fix that percentage for each additional sub, you run out of room to have that, in most cases, 51% minimum required for the prime. So again, the point is to have a range. I very much believe as a prime contractor, you should stay away from full-time equivalent guarantees. What that means is instead of saying, we're going to give you X positions on the contract, we're going to give you instead a percentage of the work share. The reason is, and it goes back to pricing. If the prices from the subcontractor are relatively higher than the primes, that means they'll get the same amount of dollars, but a lower work share percentage, which actually keeps the price down. And if they're more competitive right. than the prime, they can actually get more work share dollars than they would if they got actual FTEs. FTEs fix you because you don't know what the rates from the subs are going to be at the team agreement stage. You're only going to find out about that after the procurement's released. And that's the big gotcha. The time you sign the time agreement, a year or, or more before the time the part proposal comes out, versus when you start doing the pricing. And if you painted yourself in that corner, again, I keep using that terminology based upon the team agreement work share, it really can affect and impact your ability to actually respond. You might have to renegotiate the team agreement or live with a price higher than what you wanted to go in with. So that's the that's basically the main things I, I speak about from the prime. The only other things I would point out there is that sometimes companies want to put in a wrap rate target or, or, or financial targets. And that's fine, but I think it's actually better to talk about relative to your peers, because again, you don't know what wrap rates people will be able to achieve. And again, anytime you're specific about a number in there, that makes it more difficult potentially to actually operate in performance of the, or sorry, in response of the RFP. That's the primary stuff I would say from a prime teaming ring perspective, Todd. And now what about the sub side? So if you're a subcontractor, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Um, <laughs> meaning that what you would ideally want as a subcontractor is a fixed number of positions because then you know how much headcount you're going to get. You would want a right. specific amount of, of headcount because that way there's not a range you can kind of plan around it. So it's a perspective point. Having said that, as a subcontractor, I still recommend to my clients all the time, remember that the prime is putting the effort in. The prime is the one that's really putting the major effort in. I'm not minimizing what the subs do at all, not in any way whatsoever. But the relative value of the program to the prime and the relative investment of dollars and cost to the prime is almost 
always going to be higher than it is to the subcontractor. It's important that you understand why they need to do what they need to do to win it, because it does you no good as a sub to force, in my example, having headcount versus work share percentages of dollars and or a fixed number as opposed to a range if it means the proposal is ultimately lost. It's always a business decision. It should always be well considered by the subcontractor. But what you want and what you get may be two different things. To me, the most important part from the subcontractor is going to be developing that relationship with the prime. If you've worked them on a number of procurements before, this will be a lot easier to have this conversation. If it's the first sure. time, there's a lot of trust involved. But from a sub, again, what you want to do as a subcontractor is try to, to formalize, formalize and get as close to a guarantee of work share as possible. When you're talking this, uh, what comes up to my head is establishing a line of communication between the parties. I assume that's a very, very important part. It absolutely is. And part of it's also understanding. So, yeah, it's absolutely about establishing that line of communication, Todd. That's 100% correct. What I like to recommend is it's not just a one-time or two-time conversation. It's not just about right. the team agreement. It's about the strategy. In my mind, in my experience, what I see is the partners, the subcontractors and primes that work the best together, aren't just getting on a team to win the contract and do work. They're looking to make each other look and perform better. Can they learn from each other? Can they add value, true value? Now, communication is critical. To me, when I'm a subcontractor, I'm asking, what's your capture strategy? What's the theme? What, what do we think we have to do to win this thing? Because then you can bring more to the table as a subcontractor. You can think about the things you can offer to help achieve it versus just saying, here's how many people I want on this contract in order to sign up with you. Right now, we're hearing about a lot of supply chain challenges. And I would guess having that conversation, keeping that communication between the sub and the prime during the teaming agreement will help alleviate some of those challenges of, of deliverables. Well, you're absolutely right, Todd. And when we're talking about materials and, and, and product as opposed to labor primarily, if you're dealing with vendors, if you're dealing with subcontractors or supplying that, understanding what they can legitimately and realistically do versus what they can claim to do are two different things. Uh, we all, almost all subcontractors want to present themselves as larger and more robust than they are. And that's logical, that's business, that's smart, right? But as partners, you can't overpromise and underdeliver. And in the proposal stage, what that usually means, it's less about actually delivering that product or material. It's about explaining what the risks are so the government's aware of it to show your true knowledge of these things. And so there can actually be great value in communicating in the near future about these issues that are coming through that may trail well into 2022, 2023, without any doubt. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate all the insight into the teaming agreements between Prime and Sub and on both sides, matter of fact. Good information. Uh, I want to thank you again for being part of this. Uh, Matt, how would a customer who is listening to this or a prospect that's listening to this get a hold of you? So there's a couple ways. Thank you very much. And by the way, I think this is a really good subject. So thank you for inviting me to speak with you on it. Absolutely. Um, there's so much more to it, obviously, but I think this might give folks a primer what's there. Um, in fact, in, in the in you have a negotiations course that talks about this at length um, within federal publications that you provide. So your attendees, your listeners, this podcast might find value there. Um, in addition, yeah, if you do want, to, if someone wants to reach out to me to have conversation, um, the easiest way to to reach me is either through our 800 number, which is 1-800. 246-3154, or our website, which is unfortunately longer than I like, but it's the way of the world. It's <laughs> www.themckelveygroup.com. And then we'd be happy to help anyone with any questions they might have about team agreements or the procurement process itself. 
Matthew, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. Uh, enlighten us with, with your knowledge. You're welcome, Todd, and thank you for the time. I appreciate it as well. As always, if you have topics you want us to discuss in a podcast, please send me a note at Todd at FedPubSeminars.com. And until next time, stay safe, keep your distance, and read the bar.